good to see each one back tonight. We're glad to have a number of you who are uh, visiting with us, and we do have some who are here tonight that were not able to be here this morning. Uh, some of you are in other places. This morning we began a lesson on Jesus, our Advocate. And uh, this evening I am going to do, as Paul Harvey would say, give you the rest of the story. But I will tell you that this afternoon I went and radically pared down what I had prepared for uh, the rest of the lesson so that we can be able to fit it in not only tonight, but more importantly, so that Wednesday night I can uh, be able to deliver most of this at the West Fetville congregation. We talked about their theme was Behold the Lamb and how important it is for people to have a proper view of Jesus, to be able to see him as he really is, that he's the Son of God and that he fulfills so many roles in regard to our salvation. And particularly we talked about how that Jesus is our advocate. I wanted to make it personal. I wanted each of us to get into the lesson and feel it. In other words, feel the pressure. And so I gave three illustrations of a person going to a restaurant, having their credit card or debit card declined, a person going to an airport and being told you can't fly because they're on a no-fly list, someone who had gotten in trouble because of their uh, employment, that they had lost money for their employer. In each of those cases, asking, would you want, would you need help, someone to provide you that kind of help? And so we outlined our lesson being the terms that are used in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through chapter 2 and verse 2. And we really only looked at three things. Then we only began our discussion of the text. We looked at our very first point of it, and then we're going to, third of all, look at some of the teachings. As we talked about the terms that were used, we talked about, first of all, sin, and how important John uses that word throughout his epistle, how many times it's found, and how he uses it primarily as the breaking of God's law or lawlessness, pointing out that all sin was ultimately against God. We may sin against one another, but ultimately, when we break the law, we're breaking God's law. Then we talked about the word advocate and what it meant and how it's used throughout the Bible, particularly as it is found in the Gospel of John relating to Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit would be a comforter or a helper for Jesus with the apostles, providing them the guidance that they would need. And then we went and noticed that the word sometimes is used to beseech or to beg, to encourage, to console. And so John the Gospel uses it regarding the Holy Spirit. First John uses it with regards to Jesus being our helper before the Father. Then we looked at the term propitiation, uh, something that we don't talk about enough, but it means essentially that of what brings about or the means of forgiveness. And uh, we pointed out that God was both the just and the justifier from Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Y'all didn't think I could cover all that that quick, did you? So let's go to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at the text. I'm going to very briefly review the first part, and then we're going to pick up in earnest with the second part. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world's. We look, first of all, the fact that there must be an admission of guilt. I have to be willing, as he would point out in verse 9, to declare the sins that I have. We talked about the fact that many of us deceive ourselves into thinking we have not sinned. We talked about the denial of God's statements from verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And then we talked about the divine relationship that we seek. That of John speaking, he said, That which we have seen and heard we declare unto you and uh, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You come down to verses 6 and 7 and he talks about seeking to have a fellowship with God so that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from our sins. Too many people having the idea that they can mock at sin. So an admission of guilt is one of the first things. The second thing is where we begin in earnest tonight is the avoidance of grievance. When he says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you may not sin. You've heard the old phrase, the maximum, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. What God would rather us do is to not sin than to sin and have to confess it, than to sin and him have to forgive it. I think everyone would feel that way. The truth is, true Christians do not seek to multiply their sins. You know, there's a lot of people who think like this. I can't help from sinning because I know everybody's going to sin. I know I'm going to violate God's law. And so now that I'm a sinner, I just as well enjoy all the sin that I can. Paul put it like this in Galatians chapter, or Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his response to the King James and American Standard, God forbid the New King James, certainly not. This is something, if you and I have become a Christian, we don't keep sinning. And John himself, in 1 John 3 and verse 9, says, Whoever has been born of God does not, and literally should be inserted this word, practice sin, because it's in the present tense, does not keep on sinning, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot practice or keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. When you have changed your mind, by repenting, when you have become a true child of God, you don't just keep on sinning. You don't multiply sin upon sin. You avoid as much as possible trying to grieve God. 
when you realize that every sin, even Old Testament sins, required a death. Every time you told a lie, every time you stole, every time you did something that violated God's law, do you know what you were supposed to do? You were supposed to go to that temple. You were supposed to offer an animal sacrifice, and you had yourself to be sure that that animal died. Can you imagine looking in the eyes of that animal and saying, you've got to die because I sinned. In Hebrews 9 verse 22, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. You can't have any other kind of sacrifice that would remit sins other than a blood sacrifice. That's the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross. Oh, how we grieve God when we sin. How does it hurt God? There's one of the passages we've been studying in our Monday morning Bible class. In fact, we just studied it a couple of weeks ago. And there you read, For if we sin willfully after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Folks, let me stop here for just a moment. When you and I sin, we grieve God. We insult God. We're saying that the blood that Jesus shed was of no value whatsoever. Now we understand why we ought to avoid sin. One must seek to mitigate the damages. In trying to think about this lesson over a period of several weeks, I was watching television at lunchtime, which I generally do. I generally watch the court TV shows. I don't know why. They just happened to be on then. But a person came in and they were renting out an apartment and they had leased it to this person for a year at a time. The person came in, they paid two months rent and they quit paying and they ultimately had to be cast out. Evicted. And they came to the judge and they wanted that family to pay the whole year's rent because they signed a year's lease. And the judge looked and said, did you advertise the apartment to be rented after they had gotten out? No, 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 I just let it sit there because I expected them to pay the rent. And the judge said, you have to mitigate your damages. You have to do whatever you can not to make things any worse. Do you realize, I know that I am going to make a mistake. I know that I am going to sin. I know there's going to be something come up. But I have to make sure that I avoid it to every ounce of my ability. My little children, these things I write unto you that you may not sin. But not only do we have to admit our guilt and avoid grieving, but we must 
look at our advocate of grace. There's three different terms that are used in the New Testament that I think just really highlight Jesus as our advocate. In fact, this was to be the core of the lesson. (laughs) Everything else really was to bring you to this point right here because that's really the, the topic of my lesson. And so if you really want to, we could just pull these three points out and make the lesson about them. But I thought what preceded was so valuable. But the first term is that of a high priest. And if you think about Jesus serving as a high priest, you've got to go to the book of Hebrews. So if you want to take your Bible, let's go to a couple of verses. Let's go to chapter 3 and verse 1. Then we'll go to chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2. And here's the way the Hebrew writer begins it. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. We want you to consider him. Look at what he did. Look at the qualifications that he has. Look at his role in God's plan. Well, now you just jump over to chapter 8. He's already been talking about him as a high priest. And here's what he says. Now the main point of the things we are saying, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. He's trying to say, now here's the main point of everything we've been saying. And in fact, if you keep on reading, it's going to keep on being the point he's trying to drive home. We have a high priest who sits in heaven right now at the right hand of God. He is in the perfect place to be our advocate. He is there functioning as that Old Testament high priest did who would go into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement and he would first offer sacrifices for his own sins and then he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus did not do it once a year, every year. He did it once for all because his sacrifice was absolutely perfect. But you know, that's not all what he's going to say. This morning I referenced chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like his brethren. You know where Jesus was prior to coming to this earth? John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus was there in heaven. What did he do, though? When it came time for one to come and be the perfect sacrifice, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, who existing in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, being found in the fashion of a man. He 
humbled himself because he took physical flesh. Now, why did he do that? He had to. So he could be, now notice that first word, merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. You see, the propitiation we talked about earlier, he had to satisfy those law's demands. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I want you to observe as you read this passage that first of all, he has passed through the heavens. He knows God perfectly. He knows the Father to whom we must give our account. But he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. Just because he's been up here doesn't mean he does know how we feel down here. You know, the truth is, sometimes people who have never been through what we have been through cannot grasp or understand how we feel. Some of us who've lost loved ones know how it feels. Some of us haven't lost other kinds, and we may not know how it feels. You know, people who are hungry every day when they get up, people who don't have sufficient food to eat, we don't know how they feel, folks. We don't know the desperation of their hearts. We could look at God and say, God, you don't understand what kind of temptations we're going through. But Jesus took the form of flesh. And he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. Which brings me to the second word, and that's the word mediator. We use that word quite frequently in our world today. We have people who go through mediation, husbands and wives who are trying to resolve their marital conflicts go through some sort of mediation. Listen to the way Job describes it because I think it so accurately reflects the right way. He says, Nor is there anyone between us who may lay his hand on both of us. I'd like for you to visualize as if I had two gentlemen up here with me. And both of these gentlemen are friends of mine. And both of these gentlemen are at odds with one another. What Job is describing is a mediator who can put his hand on one man's shoulder and says, I know what you're thinking. I know how you're feeling. I know how you're hurt. He can put his hand on the other man over here and he can say, I know what you're thinking. I know how you feel. I know how you hurt. Now let me see what I can do to bring the two of you together. Let me see if I can be a go-between. 
to try to help you to resolve the problems. I exhort you, Yodia, and I exhort you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he says, help these women, true yoke fellow, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You help people that you know Jesus is our mediator. How do I know that? Galatians 3, verse 20. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. You don't have God over here and then a mediator without having someone else to mediate for. You've got to have two parties, God and man. And Jesus is that great mediator. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, he is the perfect mediator because he has been with God prior to coming to this earth. He is, to use the term in the New Testament, the Son of God, that He possesses all the characteristics of God. But He is also the Son of Man. And there's no one better positioned than He to represent us before the Father. Number three, the word intercessor. There is a great passage of scripture found in Romans chapter 8 beginning with verse 31 going through verse 39 and uh, this is a passage that would be valuable for you if you're going through a difficult time you're wondering does God love me does God care about me to read what then shall we say to these things if God is for us Who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Notice that question there in the first part of verse 34. Who is it who condemns? He tells us. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Let me put it just a little more simply if I can. Who can bring an accusation that we're not acceptable to God, that is Christians, There's only one person, and that's Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the one who gave himself for us. He is the one who's sitting there as our intercessor. You're talking about having inside help. Jesus as our advocate is the inside help. He's got the ear of the Father because we have his ear. Beginning with verse 35, continuing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now, folks, stop there for just a moment. I said, this is the passage you want to read when you're down and you think, does anybody love me? Does anybody care? And he said, what will separate us from the love of Christ? This one who's at the right hand of God, who is the only one who has the ability to condemn us because he is our only judge. And he asked, shall tribulation that we're going through, shall distress or persecution. And then he says, what about famine or nakedness or peril or sword? God cares about, Jesus cares about what's going on in your life. As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, that is the intercessor that intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 adds, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. As Jesus sits there by the right hand of God, his daily activity is to intercede for each and every one of you. I don't know if you've gotten the point yet. But the point is, Jesus is there as our great intercessor. That's about all I can do with the time that I'm permitted for point number two. I do want to take just a few moments with the teaching. We have a sin problem, and we can't address it alone. Every one of us have that problem. Every one of us stand in need. As I began with the illustrations of maybe going to a restaurant and going to an airport, both of those are cases where the likelihood is it's not our problem. But I mentioned to you the third illustration where we lose money. We made a mistake. We messed up. We messed up really bad. Do we want someone there who really is going to help us in our time of need? Yes. We have to realize we are the ones who created the problem. We're responsible. Isaiah 59 verse 1 Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's because of what I have done that I'm not at one with God. But do you realize that God provided the solution? You know, here we are, here's me, here's God, we've been separated. Who did it? Me. I'm responsible for that. 
you would think that it would be my responsibility to search, to seek, to find some way to get back to God. But, folks, the truth is, God, like the father of the prodigal son, was looking for that son a long way off, having instilled within that son from the very beginning what it took for him to come back. Romans 5 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one die, yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. But God commended or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Folks, while we didn't deserve it, while we were not looking for it, God provided the answer. We are a blessed people to have such an advocate before the Father in heaven. If you'll take your songbooks out now. Just think. Jesus is there. He is ready to plead for you. But you've got to come back. You've got to take some initiative on your own. He's provided the plan. He's provided the means. It's just you now. Just me. It's making the decision that I want him to be my advocate. If you're not a Christian, you can become a child of God, one with the privileges that go with that, by faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confession of that faith, and then being baptized. You see that over and over in the book of Acts. If you're a Christian, you can come and you can say, Father, I am sorry for what I have done. Jesus will plead for you. And you know, when Jesus pleads for you, it's going to work. Would you come as we stand and sing?